Well, since all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 33. I wonder, have you ever needed a rescue? Or needed to be rescued? I was in diapers when my family visited Martins Lake in Biloxi, Mississippi. And as my mother tells the story, we were taking a walk around the lake when we walked up to the edge of the lake to look down over this kind of small cliff that uh, dropped down into the water. And when I say small, I mean like really small. Like we're talking three to five foot range kind of cliff. Nevertheless, that's, um, that's something significant to a boy who's under two. Well, after enjoying the view for a minute, my mother took me by the hand. We walked away from the cliff until suddenly, according to my mother, I bolted from her and jumped off the cliff and into the lake. It's okay, I survived. I'm here telling you the story now, right? Um, I survived because my dad jumped into the water and rescued me. Now, all of us have probably needed to be rescued uh, physically in one form or another during the course of our lives. And all of us have need, especially of a spiritual rescue. That's why God commissioned His eternal Son and sent Him to earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to rescue us from our spiritual peril. Have you been rescued by Jesus? As we study Genesis chapters 40 and 41 today, in Joseph's rescue, we see a picture of the rescue accomplished in Jesus Christ. A foreshadowing of what would take place in full in Jesus. Now, some time ago, we began our study of the final major section of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapters 37 to 50. And that section, it focuses on the sons of Jacob. Genesis chapters 37 to 50 recount God's faithfulness to the men who would be the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. His faithfulness to them, even in the face of their failure. Uh, the brothers, these brothers who become the 12 tribes of Israel, they actually sold one of their brothers. They sold Joseph into slavery. We saw that in Genesis 39. Uh, we saw it in Genesis 37, but then in Genesis 39, last week as we saw, the Lord was with Joseph, Joseph wherever he went and whatever he went through. You'll recall that that chapter, chapter 39, closed with Joseph in jail. In chapters 40 and 41, the chapters that we're looking at together today, uh, they mark the turning point for Joseph. It is here where we see God begin to bring Joseph up out of the pit and into the palace. This is good news, not just for Joseph but actually for the whole world. A famine will strike the earth. And because of what God has done through Joseph, the world comes to Joseph and eats out of the palm of his hand. The teaching of this text is quite simple. God rescued Joseph from the pit and the world through Joseph. As I said, Joseph foreshadows the saving work of Jesus Christ. So from this text, we learn that God rescued Jesus from the grave. And He rescues us through Jesus. So, beloved, here is the sermon in a sentence. God rescued Jesus from the grave to rescue you from the grave. God rescued Jesus from the grave to rescue you from the grave. We'll study Genesis chapter 40 in two sections under two headings. You can find them on an insert there in your, your bulletin. Uh, you can pull that out. There's a full outline there. I hope that will help you to follow along. But let's begin with our first point. God rescues His servant from the pit. God rescues His servant from the pit. Follow along now as I read Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 to 8. 
Sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain, the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Well, Joseph, he ended up in prison due to the anger of Potiphar. And now the cupbearer and the baker, they've ended up in prison due to the anger of Pharaoh. And we don't really know for sure what happened or what what aroused Pharaoh's anger. Maybe it was a, a plot on his life. But we do know that it is significant that these two ended up in prison with Joseph. And notice the willing service of Joseph. Verse 4 tells us that he attended these men. Joseph met their needs and he cared for them. Like our Savior, Joseph knows what it's like to be humiliated and to be a humble servant. And do you see how verse 4 ended? They continued for some time in custody. That's actually how verse 1 opened. You see that? Joseph was in prison for some time, and now all three remain there for some time. Joseph is the servant of God suffering right alongside Pharaoh's servants. And in verses 5 to 7, double dreams, they, they roll in. Do you remember... How many dreams Joseph had back in Genesis chapter 37? He had two. And a little later, we'll see that Pharaoh has two dreams as well. Joseph, he he attended these men. He paid attention to their troubles. And as we're told there in verse 6, Joseph, he saw that they were troubled. Uh, But Joseph's sympathy didn't stop there. He actually asked them about about their troubles there in verse 7. Why are your faces downcast today? You know, in the midst of our suffering... Sometimes we're tempted to turn in on ourselves and focus on ourselves. Joseph, remarkably, he doesn't turn in on himself. He doesn't become self-absorbed. Like Jesus, Joseph is not only looking to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Christian, there are all kinds of people around you who are likely suffering in one way or another. Like Joseph and like Jesus... Be attentive to their troubles and needs. When you, you see a, a co-worker troubled, ask, well, what's, what's bothering you today? Do you, do you want to talk about it? you want to grab, grab a cup of coffee and talk about it? Be, be one who looks to the needs of others. In verse 8, Moses exposes us to another aspect of Joseph's character. He's certainly sensitive to those around him, but he's also sensitive to the things of God. Joseph knows and believes that God is the giver and interpreter of dreams. God's servant points back to God. Over and over again in these two chapters, we're we're going to see that Joseph, he, he gives all glory to God. He directs attention to God. He points to God as the one who can resolve our needs and bring our rescue. Joseph tells us with his own words that God is the central figure of his history. 
God must have given Joseph this divine insight to know that these are not just ordinary dreams. I mean, people dream all the time. I've got a few members of my family who have some pretty weird dreams, and they tell me about them pretty regularly. And I've got no idea what they mean, and, and, and we don't really spend much time worrying about that either. And that's pretty much how you should approach your dreams too, I think. Uh, something unique in redemptive history, and by that I mean tied to the saving purposes of God, something unique in redemptive history is, is happening concerning Joseph and these dreams, his dreams, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker too, and as we'll see, with the dreams of Pharaoh. The Holy Spirit must have been moving within Joseph, prompting him to understand that the Lord is not just calling him to serve these men, but to serve God's larger redemptive purposes. So Joseph, he, he lends his ear. Let's read what happens in verses 9 to 23. Follow along. Verses 9 to 23. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable... He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cakes, cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, in these verses, the cupbearer and the chief baker, they retell their dreams. And by the Spirit of God, Joseph prophetically reveals what they mean for each man. Uh, the cupbearer's dream, you see, is, relate, is, located, is related to his former vocation. Uh, and in his dream, he's really doing what he used to do day by day. And it's significant that in his dream, he, he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Uh, Joseph's interpretation is, is very natural there in verses 12 and 13. Pharaoh will lift up the cupbearer's head, restore him to his former position. And while Joseph's interpretation is natural, his interpretation has to be supernaturally given. I mean, there's no way that you can kind of naturally get from three days out of those three branches. That's, that insight has to be divinely given. But then in verses 16 and 17, we're given the chief baker's dream. 
But before we even get his dream, Moses lets us know that something is kind of off about this guy. Like the reason that the chief baker is sharing his dream is because, as verse 16 says, you see it there, the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. And as you, you read the dream, it seems actually like there's a lot of similarities, right, between the, the cupbearer's dream and now the, the baker's dream. There's another mention of the number three. There are aspects related to his vocation. There's a mention of Pharaoh. But there's also a significant difference, isn't there? Where the cupbearer helped Pharaoh to drink, right? Placing the cup in his hand, uh, the baker helped the birds to eat, not Pharaoh. So, so Joseph's interpretation in verses 18 and 19 is once again natural, but it, it also has a nasty twist in it, doesn't it? I mean, without warning, Joseph basically says, Pharaoh's going to lift up both of your heads, but you, Mr. Baker, he's going to take your head off of your body. That's, that's basically what Joseph is saying. Again, the uh, interpretation is, is natural, but it must be supernaturally given. And like the three branches and the cupbearer's dream, there's no way that you can really naturally get three days out of the three baskets. That insight, again, has to be divinely given. And Joseph has told us that on the front end, really in there in verse 8, right? Do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph is receiving these interpretations from God. And what Moses is showing us is that Joseph is the servant of God who prophetically sees into the future. That's what prophets were sometimes called in ancient Israel. They were called seers. Well, Joseph's God-given ability to prophetically see the future through these dreams is going to be significant, not just for these men's lives, but for the whole world. I mean, the reason we have this prologue is really for the sake of showing us that Joseph authorized to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He is the divinely authorized servant who sees. Now, I want you to notice something about the structure of verses 9 to 19. They, they follow really a particular pattern. So we, we get the cupbearer's dream followed by Joseph's interpretation. And then in verses 14 and 15, which I think is the middle of it, we get a plea or a request from Joseph. And then it's followed by uh, the, the, the pattern that happened before. We get the baker's dream followed by Joseph's interpretation. Again, I think the middle of these verses, 9 and 19, especially verses 14 and 15, show us that there's something significant being requested here. Joseph, he wants to be remembered there in verses 14 and 15. And as he expresses his desire to be remembered, he remembers his own history. In two brisk phrases there in verse 15, he recalls how he was sold into slavery and his innocence in the matter that landed him in prison, which he calls the pit. But did you observe how Joseph doesn't blame any particular people? Right? He doesn't name or blame his brothers. He doesn't name or blame Potiphar's wife. He simply announces that these things happened to him. It seems like Joseph is not bitterly stewing over the sins of others against him. It seems like he's letting love cover over a multitude of sins. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Not only that, but he must be trusting God's divine and guiding hand. We are beginning to see in Joseph the development of the character, which will one day allow him not only to forgive his brothers, but also to be able to say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I wonder, do you ever bitterly stew over the sins of others? The sins that they've committed against you? Do you ever turn them in your mind over and over again? I would have said this if I were there, if I, if I had my wits about them. I'm, I'm going to get them back for that. Do you ever bitterly stew over such things? 
Do you name and blame others? A friend told me a long time ago that bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Do you bitterly stew over the sins that people have committed against you? Are you ready to let love cover over a multitude of sins? Are you trusting that God is working good in you and in your life, even through the sufferings that you're enduring, enduring, perhaps even through the sins that have been committed against you? You must learn to trust God. Because as we see in verses 20 to 23, men will fail you. I mean, just like the cupbearer failed Joseph. In in verses 20 to 23, we, we see that everything came to pass just as Joseph prophesied. The cupbearer's head is lifted up and he's restored to his former position. The chief baker's head is lifted up off of his body. Joseph, though, is not lifted up. He's forgotten by the cupbearer. He is the servant of God who sees and he's the servant of God who suffers. Joseph has two choices in this situation. He can descend into despair or he can depend upon God. In the midst of your suffering, those are your two choices too. You can descend into despair, or you can depend upon God. Joseph was forgotten by man, but he was not forgotten by God. Friend, you will not be forgotten by God. Part of what this story would teach the people of Israel is that you cannot depend upon man to rescue you. You must depend upon God. Friend, who will you depend upon for your eternal salvation? Will you depend upon another man? Will you depend upon yourself and your own good works? Or will you trust in God? Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Depend upon Jesus for your eternal rescue. Now, as the next chapter opens, we see that Joseph, he depends upon God. He does not lose his faith. And God rescues him from the pit. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 16 of this new chapter. Chapter 41. Genesis 41. Beginning there in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. 
And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, here we, again, we have double dreams and a downcast soul. But ultimately, we have deliverance from the pit and dependence upon God for this interpretation of these dreams, as we saw there in verse 16. The similarities and the connections between the preceding section and this one are intentional. Moses, the writer of author of Genesis, he's dropping these hints so we know that God is at work in and through Joseph, and he's rescuing his servant Joseph. God is at work. But notice that Joseph had to wait two whole years. Beloved, sometimes you have to wait while God is at work. Simply because you are waiting doesn't mean that God isn't working. We must wait in faith. And as really eager readers of this narrative, we're going to have to wait too. Joseph's interpretation of the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker came almost immediately. But the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams are kind of dramatically delayed in the narrative. Moses wants us to understand that Pharaoh was deeply disturbed. Pharaoh calls everyone he can think of to interpret his dreams. He called all of the magicians and all of the wise men. You see that there in verse 8. But no one could interpret these dreams to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, he remains troubled. And we get a dramatic then there in verse 9. The cupbearer has seen this troubled look before. He has had this troubled look before on his own face. Back in Genesis chapter 40, verse 5. And it's then, and only then, that he remembers the Hebrew prisoner who helped him when he was a prisoner. The cupbearer's remembrance is, is somewhat comical. He's very delicately kind of explaining what has happened. He reminds Pharaoh, walking on eggshells, of the time that Pharaoh was angry with him. Right, we don't want to relive that experience. And he explains that Joseph rightly interpreted his dream. Now in verse 14, we get another dramatic then, and equally dramatic action on the part of Pharaoh. Notice how Joseph is escorted from prison. And notice how it's described. It's described as him being brought out of the pit. But I thought Joseph was in prison. Why are we reading this pit language? Do you understand what Moses, as the author, is doing? He's kind of glossing over prison language and preferring pit language. And part of the reason for that must be that he wants us to see the connection between the pit that his brothers threw him in and the prison that Potiphar threw him into. Moses is teaching us that the, the sovereign God has been orchestrating really the whole of Joseph's life up to this very point. It's, it's all connected. God's been working from that point through now. There's no escort into the palace without the pit or the prison. Beloved, always remember that God does nothing in vain. God does nothing in vain. Every step of your life has been purposed by God. And you can trust Him. And we sing with that song, Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Especially when times are dark and difficult. But don't you love it how once again, Joseph, he directs our attention to God. Pharaoh basically says, Hey, Joe, I hear 
that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, actually, I can't. But God can give the answer to your troubles. Joseph is essentially telling Pharaoh what he told the cupbearer and the baker back in chapter 40, verse 8. Again, we're learning that through all of this, Joseph is the servant of God who prophetically sees the future by the help and the grace and the spirit of God and that he, above all, depends upon God. In verses 17 to 24, Pharaoh's dreams are retold. And the purpose of this retelling seems to be to underscore yet again that no one can interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Everyone's attention is now focused in on Joseph. But what does Joseph do? Let's pick up our reading with Joseph's interpretation there in verse 25. Follow along as we read Genesis 41 verses 25 to 37. 25 to 37. Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it, that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Well, you see there in verse 25 that Joseph not only tells Pharaoh that the dreams mean the same thing, but that God revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And Joseph doesn't want anyone to miss this point. So he says it again there in verse 28. You see, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And look at verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that it is a thing fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now just pause and think about Joseph's story, right? He had double dreams, where his family would bow down to him, and that he would be a ruler. That's going to be brought about too, all through this, and these dreams taking place here. Well, Joseph, he's been, he's been brought in to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and yet over and over again we see that Joseph, he, he directs really attention away from himself and to God. Joseph is saying, Pharaoh, God has sent you these dreams. 
God has sent you these dreams and God is about to do something in the history of your nation. And God has determined that it is certain. Joseph is testifying to the truth that there is one and only one living and true God. That's Yahweh. And not Pharaoh's gods. The gods of Egypt, right? None of those magicians and wise men who served the impotent gods of Egypt could tell Pharaoh what was going on in his dreams or what would happen in the future. Only Joseph's God could disclose the future. Because Joseph's God had designed the future and is directing the future. Joseph is telling Pharaoh, my God is in charge of your dreams and in charge of history. All of history. My God is determining and directing the future. Friends, there is one and only one living and true God. And that is the God of the Bible. He is in charge of the world and your future. Whether you like it or not, He is in charge. It is better to bring your life under His good and gracious rule sooner rather than later. To give Him charge of your life and rule through His Word. Now, you're aware that Joseph has explained to Pharaoh that God in His kindness will mark the next seven years with amazing abundance of crops. That will then be followed by seven more years of an astounding absence of crops. Now in verses 33 to 37, Joseph he offers Pharaoh some unsolicited advice. And this is a bold move on Joseph's part. Here, right? I mean, select Pharaoh, a wise and discerning man, <clears throat> uh, and do the following. Right? This is a very bold move on Joseph's part. And I'm a little leery of explaining the next part of this, given that some of you work in government, but here goes. Joseph, he tells the Pharaoh not only to appoint a food czar, but that also other governmental officials to oversee the produce of the land. They're from the government and they're here to help, I guess. Um, they're then to extract a, wait for it, a 20% tax on all of the produce over the next seven years. And I would just say that such a high tax is for a limited period of time only. Um, and I want, I want those of you who particularly work for Congress to understand that this is a word from the Lord for Joseph and not for you, okay? <laughs> but this 20% this tax is preparation for those lean years, right? When there will be a severe famine on the land. They can pull from those resources. Now all of this makes sense to Pharaoh, right? And, and those around him. That's what we're told there in verse 37. This all makes sense to them. Not only has God rescued Joseph from the pit, but he's also revealed his plans for the future through his servant. Now friends, just, just stop and think about this. In interpreting the cupbearer, the baker, and Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph is telling us that God is so imminent, that he's so near, and so involved in our lives, that he can place dreams in the minds of men. God can deal with you while you sleep, when you are most defenseless. And depending upon where you are at with God, that either leads you to panic or it brings you great peace. And Joseph is telling us that God is not only so near, but that He's also so sovereign that He can order, ordain, and orchestrate history to His desired and directed ends. And depending upon where you are with God, that either leads you to panic or it leads you to peace. 
Friend, are you going to continue to war with this God? It's a war that you cannot win. Or will you give your life to God and to glad and willing service of Him? He is the near and sovereign God. Give yourself to Him. If Joseph can entrust himself to God, if Joseph can exalt God and His great character, if Joseph can glorify God, given all that he has gone through, betrayed by his brothers, lied about, falsely accused, and put in prison, well, friend, then so can you by the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. Joseph's rescue from the prison, from the pit, prefigured the rescue of Jesus Christ from the pit too. Just think of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, concerning Jesus' rescue from the pit of the grave. Peter said this on the day of Pentecost, And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Then later on, preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 10, Peter said this, They put him to death, Jesus. They put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day. God rescued Joseph from the pit. And God rescued Jesus from the grave. And friend, He can rescue you too. In fact, what we'll see in our second point is that God's grand purposes involve the rescue of the world. God rescued Joseph from the pit so that He could rescue the world through Joseph. So let's turn now and consider our second point. God's, God rescues the world through His servant. Follow along as we read Genesis 41, verses 38 to 49. Genesis 41, verses 38 to 49. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphahenoth Peniah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenoth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. And he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. What a remarkable rescue from God. Right? He has brought Joseph up from the pit, through the prison, and now he's in the palace. Do you notice who is on Pharaoh's lips? 
mean, Joseph had pointed to God over and over and over again. And God is now on Pharaoh's lips. In verse 38, we, we see that Pharaoh, he recognized the Spirit of God, the one true and living God, was on this man before him, Joseph. And then in verse 39, Pharaoh acknowledges that God has shown Joseph all this. Now, this, this doesn't mean that Pharaoh's converted. It doesn't mean that he's a follower of Yahweh. But it at least means that he cannot deny that God has been at work in Joseph. And all of this is acknowledged at the beginning of Joseph's rule. It's reminiscent of when our Lord Jesus began His ministry in the Gospels. Right? The Spirit of God, when Jesus about 30 years of age, rested upon Him in His baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Or in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, when Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah, declared that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Yes, the Spirit of the Lord was resting upon God's servant, giving Him, as Pharaoh says, wisdom and discernment. And because of this, you'll notice there in verses 38 to 40, that Joseph is given a new rule. He set over Pharaoh's house. And only Pharaoh will possess more authority than Joseph. Joseph went from being in charge of Potiphar's house to being in charge of the prison house. And now he's in charge of Pharaoh's house. And in verse 42, Pharaoh even puts his personal signet ring on Joseph's hand. I mean, it's, it's amazing. He takes it off his own hand, it seems. He places it on Joseph's hand. Now, that would give Joseph the power to authorize official documents, uh, correspondence from Pharaoh, and really kind of unilateral authority to make decisions in Pharaoh's service. But that's not all. Did you notice that he received a new garment, a new robe in verse 42? Remember, his first robe was stolen by his brothers and used to deceive his father. His second robe was stolen by Potiphar's wife and used to send him to prison. Now this robe and the gold chain that went with it would tell the world that he was a man of authority and power. In a worldly sense, he had gained more than he lost. Joseph, he gets a new rule, a new robe, and a new ride. You see that? He got a chariot right behind Pharaoh. Every knee shall bow before Joseph. Pharaoh even gives Joseph an Egyptian name. Now, it's hard to say what, what this name means for sure. It might mean something like, God has spoken and He lives, or He who knows things. That would be, um, you know, accurate for Joseph. He who knows things. But what we do know for sure, not really sure what that name means for certain, absolute certain, commentators kind of divided on that. What we do know for sure is that Moses actually continues to call Joseph, Joseph. Right? Joseph doesn't take the name change. While Pharaoh might have tried to kind of assimilate Joseph into Egyptian culture, Joseph remains faithful to his God. And that's a lesson for us who live in a world that constantly tries to assimilate us into its beliefs and practices. Our culture has their own religion and own belief. And we need to be those who follow the Bible and our God and claim the name of the triune God. With Joseph, he has received a new rule, a new robe, a new ride. And in verse 45, Joseph receives a new rib, a wife. Right, Eve was Adam's prime rib. Tell me you've heard that before. Hey, okay. Well, anyway, Joseph receives a wife. And I find it interesting that uh, she is his last and crowning gift, right? She is the daughter of an Egyptian priest named Potiphar. Uh, this is a different man than Potiphar, in whose house he served before. But the, the assonance of their names at least signals that Joseph has risen above his place in even Potiphar's house. So with this marriage, Joseph is now a kind of Egyptian royalty. The goal of this arranged marriage by Pharaoh is to cement Joseph's exalted status in Egypt. Now none of this 
It's important to recognize this. None of this alters the character of Joseph. As we've seen in verses 46 to 49, he remained a diligent servant. He, he learned humble service in Potiphar's house and in the prison. And even now he is exalted to rule over all of Egypt. He remains a humble and diligent servant of his master. You must realize that the Lord had to take him through the dark history that he has lived to form in him the character that would be necessary to serve and feed the world. Because Joseph learned to be a servant in his suffering, he led as a servant in his exaltation. Because Joseph learned to be a servant in his suffering, he led as a servant in his exaltation. I'm reminded of what we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. We read about our Savior, the Lord Jesus. There we read that Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Joseph, he was not only a diligent servant, but by God's grace, he was also a blessed servant. Verse 49 calls to mind the Abrahamic covenant and the blessing of God. Right In Genesis 22, verse 17, God promised Abraham that his descendants, they would be as numerous as the sand on the sea. And that they would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And what are we seeing here? Well, he's kind of keying in on that language. He's hinting at the fact that there are even greater things in store for Joseph. He will be part of that Abrahamic blessing to the world. In fact, in fact that's what we see in verses 50 to 57. So follow along as I read the rest of Genesis chapter 41. Pick up there in verse 50. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was a famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Well, the work of Joseph has brought blessing, but in verses 50 to 52, we see that the wife of Joseph brings the blessing, brings, brings the blessing to the birth of two sons. And in the naming of his sons, we can see more of Joseph's character. Right? Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. You see why? There's a four there. Because God made him forget the hardship that he endured. That's what the word kind of Manasseh means, really. Uh, but Joseph is not merely kind of putting matters behind him. He's not simply forgetting. After all, how could he forget what he had gone through if, after every time he calls the name of his son, uh, forgetting? He's forgetting what? He's forgetting what actually happened, right? So he's, he's actually going to be remembering. So, so what is Joseph saying? Joseph is doing more than forgetting. He's actually forgiving. You remember what Jesus said about the sinners who nailed him to the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Joseph's brothers had no idea that selling their brother into slavery would actually lead to their salvation. They're going to come to Egypt and be able to eat because Joseph has preserved food for the world. Those who nailed Jesus to the cross had no idea that what they were doing was part of God's plan to save the world. Joseph's second son reveals his faith too. In Ephraim, Joseph could see that God is the only one who could bring prosperity out of his pain. Friend, do not despise your affliction or the pain that enters into your life. Instead, let it grow your affection for God. Trust Him to lift the burden and to bring the blessing at the right time. Desire in your heart to learn the lesson that God has for you in your suffering. Like Joseph, through it all, don't lose sight of God. In verses 53 to 55, we see that God was fulfilling the dreams of Pharaoh and the prophecy of Joseph. It all came to pass just as Joseph said. Because Joseph was a faithful and diligent servant, he was able to feed the people of Egypt. Still, in verses 56 and 57, we see that it wasn't just Egypt who was hungry, but the whole world. The famine was severe in the land of Egypt, yes, but the famine was also severe over all the earth. And who did they come to but Joseph? The rescue of the whole world from hunger was not possible without God's rescue of Joseph from the pit. In fact, God rescued the world from hunger in part through rescuing Joseph from the pit. And when you, you think, when you step back and think about the trajectory of Joseph's life and all that we've considered, you can't help but see that he was a type and shadow of the true Savior of the world who was to come. Some of these reflections that I'm about to offer come from uh, A.W. Pink's book, Gleanings in Genesis, but some of them are, are my own. So just, just think about this. Comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. Uh, Joseph was sold for silver, just like Jesus. Joseph was falsely accused, just like Jesus. Joseph was innocent, just like Jesus was sinless. Joseph suffered unjustly, just like Jesus. Joseph was numbered with the transgressors, two of them, just like Jesus. Joseph only spoke what God gave him to speak, just like Jesus. Joseph was endowed with the Spirit of God, just like Jesus was at his baptism. Jesus, uh, Joseph was wise, just like Jesus is the very wisdom of God. Joseph was a true prophet, just like Jesus. Joseph asked to be remembered, just like Jesus asks us to remember him when we take the bread and the cup. Joseph began his service when he was about 30 years of age, just like Jesus. Joseph gave bread to the world, just like Jesus is the bread of life who came down from heaven to give life to the world. As we read earlier from John chapter 6, verse 37. Joseph was given a realm and a rule, just like Jesus has been given the kingdom. Joseph was given a bride, just like Jesus has been given a bride in the church. Joseph forgave his brothers for their sin against him, just like Jesus forgives us for our sin against him. Joseph's burdens brought forth blessing for others, just like Jesus' burden of the cross brought forth eternal blessing for us. Joseph was raised up from the pit by God, just like Jesus was raised up from the grave by the Father. Joseph was a humble servant who was highly exalted, just like Jesus has ascended to the throne. Every knee bowed before Joseph, just like one day 
Every knee will bow before Jesus. Joseph offered life to the world, just like Jesus offers eternal life to the world. Friends, just as Pharaoh told the hungry to go to Joseph, so I want to tell you, go to Jesus. Just like that famine endangered the physical lives of those who lived in Egypt and all the earth, so our sin against God endangers our lives eternally. The Bible teaches us that we've been made in the image of God. And so we owe our love to Him and we owe our lives to His service. And sadly, we have all sinned and rebelled against God, living our own way rather than God's way. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God sent His Son into the world, sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to rescue us from eternal death, from the pit that would hold us forever in hell. The Lord Jesus, He lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And He died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and like me. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus up from the pit of the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that He has the power to rescue us from the eternal grave. Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of God the Father in heaven, where He rules and reigns over all. Friend, if you find your soul hungry for God, go to Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God rescued Jesus from the grave to rescue you from the grave. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, or if you need help in following Jesus, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or or family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus and this good news that's found in Him. And now as we conclude, I want us to think about how our hearts should be filled with gratitude and joy for all that God has revealed in the life of Joseph and especially in the life of our Savior. Beloved, we should be amazed that God was working in the short history of Joseph's life, revealing His grand purposes in the life of His Son. The God of Joseph is our God. The the God who was quietly at work in the pit, in the prison, and the palace, is at work in our lives too. If God sent His Son to rescue you, He must love you. I mean, my dad ran to rescue me when I foolishly jumped off that cliff as a little boy because he loved me. How much greater is the love of the infinite God for you if He would send His Son, rescue His Son from the grave to rescue you from the grave? He has exalted His Son to reign over all. And in love, one day you will reign with Him. He loves you. So run to Him. Let's pray together.